Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Committed to Serving by Giles Clayson. From Denverite, I'll be reading Improper Supervision in McAuliffe School Seclusion Rooms Violated District Policy, DPS Investigation Finds by Melanie Asmar, Chalkbeat, Colorado. And Warren Village 3, the first supportive housing project tied to City Voucher Program, breaks ground at new 89-unit complex by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading, Adaptive Athletes Can Get a Discount on Epic Passes But Not Icon by Benjamin Neufeld. And, First Denver Property Earns a $999 Fine for Not Getting Rental License by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice, Committed to Serving, by Giles Clayson. Personal growth is a complicated endeavor. It requires self-awareness and effort. Not everyone is willing to take those steps, but Ray isn't one of those people. He isn't afraid of what he may find as he digs deeper into his psyche because he has been on a quest for discovery for the past several years. Mostly, this self-examination process was forced upon him by circumstances. Some of it was through personal pursuit, especially after realizing how his choices impacted those he cared about. Ray has lived on and off the streets throughout his life. Occasionally, he has found an escape from homelessness. These respites have involved good times, like his marriage. It has also involved his incarceration for drug and theft charges. I know I'm a bum, Ray said. I look at myself and I hate myself. I hate who I am and where I'm at. When I take a shower, I take it really quick. I get dressed fast. I can't look in the mirror. I can't do this anymore. I say to God, take me. I'm done. I don't think about it. It just comes out. After explaining this, Ray takes a beat and reminds himself that his belief in God means he can't give in to his emotions and he can't give up. There are times I want to give up, Ray said, but when he gets to that point, he remembers that his faith in God gives him something to keep him going. Ray also believes he must persevere to help others. That is why now I live for other people, Ray said. Ray's service to others comes in many forms. He has developed an incredible capacity for empathy and is considered a counselor for others living in tents and shelters. He will talk non-stop once you get him started. But his real gift is to listen and care for others. That gift has earned him the moniker, the counselor, among many on the street. I'm a strong person, and I want to keep going. I want to give to people, to my friends and my family, to others who have less than me. I want to help them, Ray said. The people on the street, they love me because I help them, Ray said. I'm honest and I'm genuine. People ask me, where did you come from? And I say, I'm here for the work of the Lord. Ray's commitment to faith and service is a big change from who he was once. He came from an abusive home. 
When Ray was a child, his father, who was never around, died in prison. Ray's mother, whom he described as a gangster and drug dealer, abandoned him when he was five years old. He was left alone in a house for over a week. He tried to start a fire to cook something, but the fire raged out of control and burned down the house. Ray was saved by firefighters and then was placed in foster care. After years in a group home, Ray was placed back in the care of his mother. He wasn't with her for more than a month before he ran away and was returned to foster care. I didn't know how to love my mother. She didn't know how to love me either, Ray said. I found a family in foster care. Through it all, Ray remained steadfast. He learned to drive a semi-truck, got married, and did his best to piece together his own version of a happy life. Ray never learned to be normal, though. That was partly because he never had the support to understand how to build stability. He was very much a slave to his desires and emotions. I have never felt love in my life, Ray said. The love you get from your mom and dad, I never got that. Where do you learn love if not from your mom and dad when you're young? Ray doesn't blame others for where he has ended up. He is pensive and thinks frequently about what he has missed out on and how he can thrive despite that. In prison, I didn't get one letter. No one cared enough about me to send me even one letter, Ray said. That was a wake-up call. I decided if I was going to connect with others, I had to learn to love myself. So I started trying. When Ray got out of prison, he tried to repair his relationship with his wife. I was abusive. I never hit her, and I never yelled at her or called her names, Ray said. But I was selfish, and I stayed out all night and slept with anyone I wanted. It was abusive behavior, in my mind. His wife died of a fentanyl overdose before they really had a chance to mend their relationship. Ray was able to reconnect with his mother before she died of cirrhosis. According to Ray... His mother's doctor had told her she had less than a year to live, but she went on to live for many more years. Ray said it was during his time in prison, and also while he was living on the streets, that he learned to care for others. Today, Ray aims to live in service to others, even as he hustles to find a way off the streets. Recently, Ray talked a stranger into lending him a lawnmower so he could mow lawns to make a few bucks. Once he got the machine... Ray went door to door and explained his situation to those who answered. He offered to mow people's lawns for whatever amount of money they were comfortable paying, and if the person couldn't pay, he cut their lawn for free. Sometimes people need a little help, said Ray. If I can cut their lawn and help them when they have nothing to pay, well, that's enough for me, he added. Ray watches out for his friends and others experiencing homelessness. He listens to them and shares what insight or helpful opinions he has. Ray is tired of the ever-presence of drugs. He says he knows people only turn to drugs as an escape from their misery, but he has seen too many individuals die from drugs. Ray carries Narcan with him, and he has used it on several occasions to revive individuals who overdosed. He wants to help heal people's bodies and spirits, and he's willing to do whatever is necessary for them. So he tries to always be prepared for anything the streets may throw at him. I think the Lord is with me, Ray said. I've had people treat me like a dog, but God, he's been with me. I am trying to surrender to him. That's the path. The only thing I can do is try and to serve others. The next two articles are from Denverite.
Improper supervision in McAuliffe school seclusion rooms violated district policy, DPS investigation finds, by Melanie Asmer, Chalkbeat, Colorado. A Denver Public Schools investigation found that former McAuliffe International School principal Kurt Dennis placed students, or directed staff to place students, in two seclusion rooms last year without proper supervision and then either locked or held the door shut. That's according to a three-page letter summarizing the findings that is addressed to Dennis and was provided to Chalkbeat by Dennis's attorney, David Lane. The letter says that the facts support a finding that Dennis violated DPS's seclusion policy. The rooms were in use from November 18th through the end of the school year, the letter says. The investigation found that McAuliffe's staff continued using these rooms for seclusion despite being aware that at least one of the rooms, which was damaged during the course of the school year, was not safe or appropriate for this purpose, the letter says. However, the letter says there was insufficient evidence to support an allegation that Dennis disproportionately placed students of color in the seclusion rooms. Dennis was fired as principal of McAuliffe in July in the aftermath of a televised interview he gave to Nine News in March expressing concerns about gun violence and student safety. The Denver School Board voted last week to uphold Dennis's firing. The allegations about the seclusion room came to light after the firing but before the vote. DPS policy requires that one or more staff members accompany a student inside a seclusion room. In an interview Thursday, Lane said Dennis did not violate district policy because the policy doesn't specify what to do if a student is acting violently toward the staff member in the room by hitting, kicking, and spitting at them, which he said was happening at McAuliffe. There was no policy on what to do in those circumstances, so there was no policy violation, Lane said. Dennis and Lane have denied that students were alone in the room because staff monitored them through a window in the door. Lane also disputes DPS's numbers and verbiage. The letter implies four students were put in seclusion, while Lane claims it was two. The letter also mentions two seclusion rooms, but Lane said there was only one de-escalation room. Lane said he plans to sue DPS on Dennis's behalf in federal court next week. Colorado law allows schools to seclude a student alone inside a room with the door closed as long as the student is monitored through a window or by video camera. In the wake of the McAuliffe allegations, State Representative Regina English, a Colorado Springs Democrat, said she wants to ban the use of seclusion rooms statewide. English made the announcement at a press conference in Denver earlier this month alongside three Denver school board members. The issue is already on lawmakers' radar. A 2020 Chalkbeat investigation uncovered weak state oversight of seclusion, and in 2022, lawmakers passed new limits and reporting requirements for both seclusion and restraint, which means forcibly restricting a student's movement. DPS policy has long gone a step further than state law. DPS calls its practice of requiring a staff member to be in the room monitored seclusion or modified seclusion. In the 2018 to 2019 school year, the district reported 111 instances of modified seclusion, according to a review written by DPS staff and obtained by Chalkbeat through an open records request. 
Updated numbers for the 2022-2023 school year were not immediately available Thursday. Some of Colorado's other large school districts reported even more incidents of seclusion in 2018 and 2019, according to reviews written by those districts. Young students with disabilities were disproportionately subjected to seclusion, according to the reviews. The State Education Department can investigate the misuse of seclusion. In 2020, for example, the department found that a rural school district violated state law when it secluded a kindergartner in a small booth in the nurse's office normally used for hearing tests. The kindergartner had wet his pants, refused to change his clothes, and kicked and hit two staff members, according to the findings. The department found that secluding him in the booth was a violation for several reasons, including that the seclusion was used as a punitive form of discipline and that the booth did not have adequate ventilation or was not big enough. The Colorado Department of Education is now investigating the use of seclusion at McAuliffe, according to a department spokesperson, but the DPS investigation is complete. DPS interviewed three students and 24 witnesses as part of its investigation, according to the letter summarizing the findings. Dennis declined to speak to investigators, who instead used public statements made by him or his attorney. Dennis told the Denver Post earlier this month that he had a lock put on the door of a seclusion room that was later removed. Denver School Board Vice President Ante Anderson said at a press conference Thursday that the full 33-page investigation report, which was provided to board members but has not yet been made public, contains stories that have kept me up this past week. To the students who may have suffered, my heart aches for the pain you have endured, Anderson said. Saying, I'm sorry, hardly feels adequate. DPS denied an open records request by Chalkbeat for a copy of the 33-page report, arguing that it was a privileged document. Lane said neither he nor Dennis has seen the 33-page report. Warren Village 3, the first supportive housing project tied to City Voucher Program, breaks ground at new 89-unit complex by Desiree Matherin. Reba Jones moved to Denver in 2013 looking for change and ready to start a family. By 2016, that family was coming together. Her son was due that year and she had given birth to a healthy girl years earlier. But her boyfriend had become abusive. It was a cycle she'd known since her youth and she was looking to break it. I knew the only way to break that cycle, to unravel the chaos and give my kids a new beginning, was for me to get my own self together, Jones said. Turning over a new leaf is the hardest thing humans have ever done in life. Where you're at, even though it may not be the best living situation, it's comfortable, but you can't stay that comfortable for too long. Her first step toward finding safety and security was reaching out to Warren Village, a nonprofit that assists single-parent families who are unhoused or experiencing housing instability with reaching independence and self-reliance. She moved into one of their supportive housing communities in 2016 and began working to reach self-sufficiency. Jones said that with therapy, financial guidance, and education opportunities, she was ready to give herself and her children the life she was looking for. I woke up every morning and Warren Village was like, All right, who do you want to be today and what do you want to do? Jones said. 
To know that there was someone there asking me those questions in ways I've never been asked before, it truly set the tone. Now my kids will never know how it looks to stand in another government assistance line. Jones shared her story on Wednesday as Warren Village and several city and state organizations celebrated the groundbreaking of Warren Village 3, a new supportive housing complex in the Athmar Park neighborhood. It's the third housing project brought forth by the nonprofit. The building at 1390 West Alameda Avenue, next to the Women's Bean Project, will house 89 income-restricted units for families earning up to 30%, 50%, or 80% of the area median income. For a family of three, that ranges from $33,510 to $89,360. Within those units, 79 will be for families exiting homelessness and in need of supportive services. Those services include financial counseling, mental health assistance for both parents and children, moving assistance, case management, and legal services. The 2023 point-in-time count, which captures a snapshot of people experiencing homelessness, found that there were 2,101 families in the Denver metro, up from 1,277 the previous year. Warren Village 3 will also be the first supportive housing complex to have an early learning center on site, according to city officials. Some income-restricted properties also have child care on site. Another first at the complex is the use of new city housing vouchers. In 2020, Denver voters approved a 0.25% sales tax to create the Homelessness Resolution Fund to address homelessness. With that funding, the city was able to create project-based vouchers. Typically, federal and state vouchers are hard to get, and once a person receives a voucher, then they face the tough task of finding a landlord willing to accept it. City vouchers will be tied to specific projects, like this one in St. Francis Center West, another affordable housing complex in the works. Once a person qualifies for the voucher, the apartment comes with it. A total of 29 units will include project-based vouchers funded by the city, and an additional 50 units will receive vouchers from the Denver Housing Authority. These vouchers are meant to ensure selected residents won't pay more than 30% of their income on rent. The vouchers will be provided to the units for over 20 years and will cost up to $22.7 million from, the, from Denver's Homelessness Resolution Fund. At the groundbreaking, several city and state officials spoke on the funding for the project. Congresswoman Diana DeGitt secured about $4 million through a government spending bill Congress approved in December. Some other projects funded by the bill included the purchase and conversion of stay-in hotel and the construction of Urban Peaks New Shelter. The Department of Housing Stability provided $3.8 million in gap financing for construction and almost $1.78 million for supportive services over 15 years. Other public finance partners include the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, Colorado Division of Housing, and DHA. The project is set to be completed in 18 months. After sharing her story, Jones added that she currently sits on the Warren Village Board of Trustees as the field office project engineer. She's also a part of the programming committee that sets forth the blueprint plans for families during their stay. 
It's a way for her to give back and show others that if they need help, they can have it. It means giving someone else the tools and helping them get in there a quicker time frame than I did, Jones said. Poverty is painful. Now we have options. We're breaking the ties to financial trauma so that we can build a life that we're proud of. The following articles are from Westward. Adaptive Athletes Can Get a Discount on Epic Passes But Not Icon by Benjamin Neufeld. It's a question Colorado skiers and snowboarders ask themselves every fall. Epic or Icon? But what if you're a disabled athlete looking for a discounted mountain pass? A welcome break after the bank-breaking expense of adaptive ski gear equipment and one that would allow you to visit numerous resorts. Then the choice is easy. As a way to increase participation and representation of all abilities in skiing and riding, Vail Resorts offers a significant discount on the Epic Pass for adaptive skiers, according to Vail Resorts Director of Corporate Communications, Jamie Alvarez. Altera Mountain Company, which sells the slightly newer Icon Pass, does not. Adaptive athletes like Mark Urich, who had his right leg amputated at the age of two, want to persuade Altera to change that. Urich, who grew up in Loveland, didn't try skiing until his mid-twenties. But when he did, he recalls, I was like, wow, this is something that I love. I tried it for two days and quit my job and moved to the mountains. Yurik sometimes skis on his one leg and sometimes uses a sit-ski, a setup designed for those who either don't have legs or don't have function in their legs. For people like Yurik's wife and many others, the sit-ski is their only option, and it's not cheap. A basic frame is like $5,000, Yurik says. The shock is around $2,000. The seat bucket is $1,000, but you want it custom-modeled like a pair of ski boots. Outriggers cost $750, but the costs can go higher depending on the impairment. When you get into people's ski and board prosthetic legs, that insurance doesn't usually cover. You can be talking of over $100,000 per prosthetic in some cases, Yurik says. Blind skiers have to cover the cost of the whole other skier because they have to pay their guide's way usually and also pay the guide. But while the price tags are hefty, being out on the mountain is well worth the cost, according to Yurik. It's just a sport that you can do as a disabled person better than an able-bodied person, he says. As a disabled person, to see an able-bodied person not being able to do something that you can do is a pretty exhilarating feeling. Yurik volunteers as a teacher to help adaptive athletes learn advanced skills on the slopes. When a disabled person gets it, When I'm teaching them and they're struggling and I'm like, try this, and they start linking turns and they feel that swoosh, so to speak, that feeling of bending the ski and getting it to pop and being over it and ready for the next one, kind of playing with the mountain. It's a really freeing experience, he says. If you're in a wheelchair and you get into a sit ski, you forget that you're disabled. But on top of the cost of the equipment, there's the lift ticket which can run as much as $299 at places like Vail. So skiing enthusiasts usually buy season passes to a favorite resort or passes like the Epic or Icon, which act as season tickets for multiple mountains. The Epic Pass costs $929 for adults right now, 
Prices go up on September 4th and includes unlimited access at dozens of resorts around the world, including Vail, Beaver Creek, Breckenridge, Keystone, and Crested Butte in Colorado. The Icon Base Pass also costs $929, with unlimited days at Eldora, Winter Park, and Copper, as well as five days at Steamboat and Arapahoe Basin. A more expensive version of the Icon includes more days at those two resorts and access to other resorts around the world. While they are expensive, the passes often pay for themselves after just a few days of skiing. The Epic Adaptive Pass includes all the benefits of the regular Epic Pass, but at a discounted price of $455. It's available to people with permanent disabilities. Vail Resorts qualifies a permanent disability as a permanent physical, mental, or sensory impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, such as caring for oneself, performing manual tasks, walking, seeing, hearing, speaking, breathing, learning, or working, Alvarez says. The Epic Pass was introduced in 2008, and the adaptive discount has been around for the past decade, according to Alvarez. In March 2022, ahead of the 2022-2023 season, we made our adaptive passes easier to purchase online and expanded our options to best fit the needs of our guests, she says. Icon was introduced in 2018 and has never offered an adaptive discount. They don't do it, Yurik says. They offer a military discount. They offer a student discount. They offer a nurse discount, which is great. I'm stoked for all those groups. But all those groups of people don't have to spend $12,000 extra to do the same sport. When Yurik reached out to Icon, he says he was told that individual resorts under the Icon umbrella offer discounts each season. Icon Pass does not offer an adaptive pass, confirms Kristen Rust, a spokesperson for Altera. However, many Icon Pass destinations do offer their own adaptive pass options. But that option doesn't work for Yurik, who likes to ski around. I want to go on an epic six-resort ski trip with my buddies, he says. Copper Mountain offers an adaptive season pass for $349. Winter Park offers a significant discount, around 50%, on season passes for adaptive skiers and riders, according to Resort resort spokesperson Jen Miller. A Winter Park season pass currently costs $709, or $354.50 with a 50% discount for the adaptive pass. Still, the combined cost of the discounted Copper and Winter Park season passes is significantly more than the Epic Adaptive Pass. But Altera works with the adaptive community in other ways, notes Rust, pointing out that the company works with and donates to the High Fives Foundation, a nonprofit that helps adaptive athletes. Icon Pass partners with adaptive athletes Trevor Kennison and Noah Elliott, Rust continues. Icon Pass, along with, alongside Winter Park, CMH, High Fives Foundation, and Craig Hospital, are partnering with Lavelle to produce a feature-length documentary called Full Circle, about Trevor Kinnison, Barry Corbett, and spinal cord injuries in the outdoors. Brittany Curry, Paralympic snowboarder, and Phil Q. Quintana, veteran, were featured in an Icon Pass storytelling piece. We work with several of other influencers who identify as adaptive athletes 
or disability advocacy voices. Winter Park is the longtime host of the National Sports Center for the Disabled, and most credit Winter Park Resort as the birthplace of adaptive skiing and riding, according to Miller. Hal O'Leary founded the National Sports Center for the Disabled at Winter Park more than 50 years ago, and the NSCD has called it home ever since. Through a long-term partnership, Winter Park Resort donates office space, gear, lift tickets, and other in-kind and cash contributions to the NSCD and its athletes every year. But those commitments just make Yurik wish Altera went the extra mile and offered an adaptive discount for the Icon Pass. Athletes who learn to ski at Winter Park might want to try other resorts, too. This isn't the first year he has complained to Altera. I'm always trying to, to toot the horn, Yurik says, noting how he tends to rally supporters in adaptive skier Facebook groups like the Sit Ski Collective. But it's not just disabled athletes that should be making noise, he adds. Anyone can be disabled, he concludes. Anybody can spin that wheel at any time, on any day. It's not picky. You could walk out your door and become disabled, get hit by a bus, whatever. It can happen to anyone. First, Denver property earns $999 fine for not getting rental license by Katie Cheshire. The multi-unit apartment building at 3401 Williams Street in Denver's Cole neighborhood got hit with the city's first $999 fine in residential rental licensing history this week for refusing to comply with licensing orders, according to the Denver Department of Excise and Licenses. The building, managed by Acute Property Management, received a violation on May 9th in the first wave of fines for the residential license. Enforcement begins with $150 administrative penalties for property owners and operators before nailing them with $500 and $999 tickets if they remain out of compliance. The building incurred a $500 fine in June after failing to comply and has now reached the maximum penalty threshold with a $999 fee that was issued on August 29th, the city announced Thursday. Excise and Licenses is technically allowed to fine an unlicensed operator $999 per day after it receives its first $999 penalty, should they continue to ignore department orders. But city officials have previously said they hoped no property would actually reach that point. They typically try to use fines and citations as a last resort. I can't comment if the city will pursue that path with this property, said Eric Escudero, Communications Director for Excise and Licenses. Currently, 8,831 properties are in compliance, representing 135,000 rental units total. Of those, 4,857 are multi-unit residences, like the Williams Street building, which were all supposed to be licensed by January 1st. The city predicts there will be 25,000 licenses for multi-unit residences once they're all accounted for. The license is required by the Healthy Residential Rentals for All Ordinance, passed by Denver City Council in May of 2021. The council designed the ordinance to help even the playing field between renters and landlords, as well as gain an official count of rental properties in the city, something that has never existed. 
The city expects that eventually about 50,000 properties will be properly licensed as a result of the program. Our hope is this property and all other properties that are operating without a license will be compelled to get in compliance with Denver law, demonstrate that their property meets minimal housing standards by passing an inspection, and get the license that only has to be renewed once every four years, Escudero says. The rest of the nearly 9,000 licensed properties are single-unit properties like family homes or condos. Those must all be licensed by January 2024 and will receive a 50% discount on their $50 application fee if they do. For licensing purposes, minimal housing standards include working heat, running water, in-place fire safety measures, proper electrical wiring, and sufficient egress. In July, residential rental licenses surpassed security guards as the most issued business license in Denver, according to Excise and Licenses. There were 7,677 active security guard licenses at that time, the city says. Denver has issued 1,578 notices of violations to unlicensed multi-unit properties. These let landlords know fines are coming if they don't get inspected and licensed. Plenty of properties have ignored those notices, with 154 being issued first-time $100.50 fines so far this year, and 12 receiving elevated $500 fines. For the first time ever, the city now has a licensing requirement to hold landlords accountable for renting out unsafe properties despite charging near-record levels for rent every month, Escudero says. Property managers can check out the city's FAQ page on rental licensing for more information. Tenants experiencing problems at their apartments can call 311 to file a report. Renters can also check their address in the city's permitting and licensing center to see if the property is licensed or has a pending application. If not, they can contact Excise and Licenses or call 311. Park Hill Golf Course, Pickleball, and City Appointees on Agenda for Denver Parks and Rec by Katie Cheshire. Each of Mayor Mike Johnston's 28 transition committees released a memo this month directing Denver's new chief executive on priorities for his first 100 days in office. For Parks and Recreation, Johnston's vibrant Denver transition team focused on permitting, connecting with nonprofits, the Park Hill Golf Course, investing in historically ignored areas, and pickleball, of course. Tensions between pickleball players and residents have escalated to concerning levels, says the Parks and Rec memo, which went out on August 4th. While this is a national issue, resentment and distrust with DPR leadership decisions regarding expanding access and resisting well-known solutions have heightened tensions. At a July 10th forum held by the committee that examined the Parks Department, members of the public called out the aforementioned topics as spaces for improvement. They also took issue with former Mayor Michael Hancock's decision to change Scott Gilmore and John Martinez, Deputy Executive Directors of Park and Rec, to Career Services Authority status in 2021. The positions had previously been appointed by the mayor, but the pair will now be grandfathered into Johnston's administration as CSA employees are protected. In its recommendations, the Parks Committee, led by co-chairs 
Connie Rule and Jolon Clark, tackled the issue head-on. The committee strongly recommends that the mayor-elect reallocate those two appointments to Parks to build out a leadership team that embodies a culture of transparency, community engagement, change, and accountability, the memo says. It also notes that culture and trust among staffers is poor. There is low engagement, satisfaction, and empowerment of employees up and down the org chart, the memo charges. There's also a clear perception that favoritism and cronyism played a significant role in employees' opportunities for advancement in the department, which has discouraged people exploring a DPR career. As for pickleball, the memo says there are over 10,000 active players in the Metro Denver area, and court capacity has not kept up with the demand. In May, more than 6,000 picklers filed a formal appeal to the Parks and Recreation Advisory Board regarding the department's treatment of the booming paddle sport, from the termination of pre-approved projects in Congress Park and Sloan's Lake Park to the lack of transparency in decision-making about how the city is dealing with it. The pickleball community is asking this board for a seat at the negotiation table, says the appeal. If we are not offered a seat at the table, we plan to peacefully bring folding chairs to your meetings so we are no longer on Denver Parks and Recreation's menu. The transition memo specifically instructs the department to hire pickleball staff to coordinate the integration of the sport throughout the park system and to facilitate more input from the community. It suggests keeping the pickleball advisory group that was established in April and proposes giving picklers what they've been begging for, more courts and fast. Immediately offer indoor pickleball programs with proper equipment and permanent lines at all rec centers while ensuring that no youth and local programming is displaced, the memo suggests. Add more pickleball courts citywide. Johnston's Parks and Recreation Transition Team also directs the department to explore a long-term growth strategy that considers acquiring property for a pickleball sports complex. At the July 10th forum, resident Maria Gersh said, We acknowledge that compared to real city issues that our mayor is dealing with, like affordable housing and homelessness, parks and pickleball is not necessarily up there. But pickleball will definitely be on the radar if Johnston's committee is listened to. One major issue identified by picklers and other residents is the lack of transparency and community engagement by the department. Many of the Transitions Committee's recommendations focus on improving that engagement. Create a specific plan to meet with and engage the community proactively and consistently in decision-making processes, ensuring that community engagement is transparent, shares power in the process, and is structured with a strong equity lens to meet communities and individuals where they are, the memo says. It also suggests consistent reporting policies on department goals and dollars. Rebuilding trust will come through transparency, and that must be modeled by leadership, the memo adds. According to Johnston's Parks Transition Team, city officials should examine certain systems that block communities from partnering with the department, particularly in permitting and programming. Its memo also takes on one of the hottest park debate debates in recent years, what to do with the Park Hill Golf Course. In the municipal election in April, 
Voters ruled it should be kept under a conservation easement rather than developed. The property was purchased by Westside Investment Partners in 2019 for $24 million with the intention of building a mixed-use community. Because of the easement, it could only be used as a golf course. Now that voters have affirmed that they're not interested in Westside's plan, however, the transition memo says it's time for the city to buy the property back. The mayor should meet with the property owner to discuss the possibility of a sale and the steps required for acquisition, it dictates. A clear vision for the property should be announced, and a stakeholder group should be assembled accordingly to work towards acquiring the property. The golf course should be bought at fair market value considering the easement, the memo adds. Other priorities identified in the Parks Committee recommendations include development and land acquisition strategies, particularly in historically under-resourced communities. The department has begun that work, but there is more work to be done, it says. While this effort was flagged as a strength, it was noted that this is just the beginning of righting historical wrongs, and the department must continue to stay focused and committed to these investments, the memo explains. It also points out that park rangers and law enforcement staff need to become more diverse, especially in parks that receive less attention. There has been a disheartening shift from structures that support youth of color and families with limited resources to a focus on accommodating well-heeled residents with abundant financial resources, flexibility with time and location, private clubs and activities within the department, according to the memo. In addition, the memo claims, there is a lack of accessibility for those with disabilities looking to use public parks. Designing spaces with marginalized groups at the center leads to accessibility, inclusivity, and memorability for everybody, it says. Design should prioritize high accessibility for people with disabilities, pay homage to neighborhood history and culture, and include requested amenities like restrooms and water fountains. Improving access to mountain parks, potentially with a free chartered bus to access our mountain parks, prioritizing the communities and groups that do not have equal access, is another recommendation related to equity in the park system. Finally, the report advises the Parks Department to ensure that climate and resiliency is built into its strategic plan as it reviews its goals. Our parks and public spaces should provide areas for residents to find relief from an intensifying climate while also providing natural habitat, attracting pollinators, and providing critical support for natural systems, it says. The memo also calls for aggressive work on the city's tree canopy and better engagement with youth in parks, as well as management of the goose population in the city to prevent the need for culling. The report's authors suggest that the department still needs to conduct a listening tour and get more public input in order to develop further plans. With just a few weeks to complete the process of discussion and synthesis, the committee does not feel this was a thorough and inclusive approach to bringing a community voice to this report, they say. However, the community agreed that what follows is a thoughtful approach for the Johnston administration and the new Parks and Recreation Executive Director for the first 100 days. Gregory Allen Isakoff discusses new album ahead of Red Rock's performance by Justin Criado. Gregory Allen Isakoff is no stranger to practicing patience. 
Whether it's growing crops on his four-acre Boulder County farm or harvesting harmonies in the barn studio not far from the fields, the do-it-all singer-songwriter knows it takes time to nurture and massage the land and the muse from which he operates. Such fortitude has given Isakoff a different perspective when it comes to making records, but he still prefers to immerse himself in the creative process as much as possible. I write in these large format ways where I'm just surrounded by all these pieces of music all the time, he says, including covering the walls in post-it notes filled with lyrics and song ideas. Much like farming, which is one of Isakov's longtime passions and livelihoods, writing music begins with sowing seeds, though some songs may not sprout into full-fledged, record-ready composition until years afterward, he explains. That turned out to be the case as he worked and focused on writing his new record, Appaloosa Bones, on which he played nearly all the instruments. The album was released this month via Dual Tone Records and Isakoff's own label, Suitcase Town Music. I have songs that just didn't make other records in the past, and some songs are like 15 years old, the seeds of them, he says. I got a chance to relook at a few of those. For me, this record is about writing something that reminded me of starting out writing songs in the first place. That curiosity that happens when you're first writing songs, as he did as a teenager. Isakoff says he's never viewed records as merch, so he prefers to take as much time as he needs to craft his full-length releases. He lets the new songs settle in and simmer before plucking them from his mind whenever he decides they're ripe. It helps that he's a prolific writer, too, and, and seemingly unable to contain the wellspring he tapped two decades ago. For Appaloosa Bones, Isakoff tracked more than 30 thong songs initially. He says that's a normal amount for him, before paring it down to the final 11 that appear on the official track list. I write a lot of songs, he says. Then what I do is start listening, because I start figuring out what the songs are trying to do. I'm such a record guy. I love making records, so some of the songs that didn't quite make this particular record, I loved, but they just didn't fit the landscape of the other songs. His original vision for Appaloosa Bones, a follow-up to his Grammy-nominated 2018 album, Evening Machines, centered around more of a folksy, lo-fi rock and roll sound, a bare-bones offering, as he calls it. But the album eventually took a different path, ultimately becoming a throwback to Isakoff's early years on the road when he was playing out for the first time, he adds, mainly across the West and Southwest. The songs kind of told me, no, fuck you, this is what we're going to be, laughs Isakoff, who was born in South Africa and raised in Philadelphia. After a while, I was just holding on to the reins, waiting to see where it was going and how the material worked. He's glad he didn't hinder the new material in any way, because he's still fond of those road-worn memories and quick to reminisce about the dusty bars or keen coffee shops that served as proper venues back then. I was really trying to get back into that mindset, he explains. These wide-open landscapes had these, this quietness and expansive deepness that grounded me and evoked a lot of the curiosities I was drawn to when I started writing songs. He dug deeper into that frame of mind while visiting and co-writing some songs with West Texas musician friends Ron Scott and Joan, Johan Wagner. 
Engineer Andrew Berlin then helped Isakov lay down the dozens of tracks that sprang forth within the last five years between releases. Rolling Stone called the finished product beautiful collisions of acoustic instruments, Isakov's soothing vocals, and otherworldly noise. Even with such praise, the editing process is never truly finished in Isakov's mind. There's always a reason it just doesn't sound finished to me, he admits. That gauge inside of me is just based on my feelings of usefulness, like, is this song useful to me or to you in some way? Sometimes I feel like a song is just more useful to me, and I tend to steer away from that. With a tour planned in support of Appaloosa Bones, the songs will continue to grow and come to life from the stage, especially during Isakoff's trio of hometown shows over Labor Day weekend. He'll play the Mission Ballroom on Saturday, September 2nd, Dillon Amphitheater on Sunday, September 3rd, and Red Rocks Amphitheater on Monday, September 4th. The Dillon concert is sold out, but tickets are still available for the Denver and Morrison shows. Fans can expect a really quiet, simple kind of show, Isakoff says, much like the understated nature of the record. We try to build a whole landscape of music and experience for people. It's always different every night. I never know what to expect either, he says, adding that it's five years of work that's all being harvested. It's a little bit terrifying, but so exciting, he continues, like, oh, these aren't mine anymore at all. It's a very freeing experience, whether five people are going to listen to it or 5,000. It's the same feeling. It's safe to say that more than five people will be listening to Appaloosa Bones or anything Isakoff puts out, as his previous five releases have garnered more than one billion streams to date. His music has also been used on shows such as Grey's Anatomy, The Haunting of Hill House, and This Is Us. Farming takes an abnormal amount of dedication and determination, but Isakoff credits his father and his former job as a restaurant dishwasher for his workhorse approach to everything he does with music. I remember my dad being like, you really need to love this job and put all yourself into this and all your integrity and be faster than you were before and do the best job that you possibly can, he recalls. I feel that sense of integrity with work. I really want to throw my whole being into it. But, as with agriculture, songwriting isn't always rooted in a cause-and-effect relationship. Time is so elusive with this stuff because you go in and it's not like this evolutionary thing. Like, if you spend this much time doing these things, you're going to get these results, Isakoff explains. I can be in there for months and not have anything. Or I can be in there after dinner one time and get three songs. It's so elusive, the whole process. In a sense, songs are alive, he adds, so letting them roam free at times is necessary, too. We're playing songs in our show that I wrote 15 years ago. They're living things, so they're changing every night, he says. There's more space, or less space. We're playing with that space all the time. That's what makes a great song for me to play at a show. Some songs don't want to be recorded, and some songs that were recorded don't want to be played live. These are going to be around, hopefully, after we die, he continues. So let's really put our whole selves into them, even if they're never going to be perfect or all the way right. At least I know I bled into this thing. It's that type of self-satisfaction in the job at hand that keeps Isakov going. 
Much like providing produce to local establishments, his farm's CSA members and Boulder County Food Bank Community Food Share, Isakoff says that releasing new music is a long act of service to me and the world. All I can do is hope that it makes people feel something and that it's useful and inspiring for them in their lives, he concludes. Gregory Allen Isakoff, 7 p.m. Saturday, September 2nd, Mission Ballroom, 4242 Wincoop Street, tickets $51 to $1,500. 7 p.m. Monday, September 4th, Red Rocks Amphitheater, 18300 West Alameda Parkway, tickets $120 to $1,000. Beautiful, the Carol King musical opens Arvada Center's season by Tony Tresca. Even if someone isn't familiar with the name Carol King, there's a good chance that they have been affected by her music in some way. Although the legendary singer-songwriter is most widely associated with her solo work, such as the 1971 chart-topping and Grammy Award-winning album Tapestry, King's career began behind the scenes as a writer for other artists. The Shirelles' smash hit, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, The Drifters' Up on the Roof, and Aretha Franklin's legendary You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman were just a few of the songs that King co-wrote with her songwriter partner and then-husband, Jerry Goffin. At that time, she was toiling away in an office at 1650 Broadway in New York City, honing her writing skills for others. One thing Beautiful does really well is highlight the fact that Carol King was a nobody when she started writing, says actress Emily Van Fleet, who is portraying King in the Arvada Center's production of Beautiful, the Carol King musical. She was there to serve the music and help these other artists succeed, she continues. Writing a song for them was the greatest thing in the world, and the show kind of alternates between her home life, the office where she and Jerry wrote, and these performances by the stars she was inspired to write for. This spirited tribute to the early days of King's long career opens the Arvada Center's 2023-2024 season at its main stage theater from Friday, September 8th to October 15th. Beautiful charts King's journey from a shy Jewish girl living in Brooklyn to an international superstar. The original 2014 Broadway production of Beautiful received seven Tony Award nominations, winning two, and features music by Carol King, Jerry Goffin, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Weil, with a book by Douglas McGrath. According to the Arvada Center's artistic director and beautiful director, Lynn Collins, this play is essentially about leading with love, the love King had for her family, her friends, music, and performing. Her whole career is about learning to love, and most important, learning to love herself. Beautiful, the Carol King Musical, Friday, September 8th through Sunday, October 15th, Arvada Center, 6901 Wadsworth Boulevard, Arvada. Find tickets starting at $56 and more information at arvadacenter.org. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.